What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. Welcome to Who Pods the Watchmen, a companion podcast for the upcoming nine-episode miniseries mm-hmm. debuting October 20th on HBO, The Watchmen Show. is, of course, what we're talking about. And we are here today to discuss what? You know, when we started this, most people know we're, we've been going through each issue by issue to kind of break down each issue. Right. Now, we're done with that. We did that last week, and it just turns out, I mean, I think pretty good timing on your part. I'm sure you had something to do with that, that the reviews have come out. I mm-hmm. think they've had uh, an initial screening of the first episode. Yeah. Right? I think a couple thousand people watched it. The results are out. We have some Rotten Tomato stuff to go on. We have some New York Times. We have The Ringer. We have different people talking about it. And we wanted to chat about it, uh, I guess, and kind of get initial impressions, our hot takes, first takes, because what else are we going to do this week? Well, well, no no takes. I guess we're, we're on the edge. We're on the, the precipice of being able to finally see this show, which is very exciting. And yeah, we're seeing all these other people's reviews coming in. So yeah. we thought, yeah, we'll sit down here. We'll chat about it a little bit. Uh, before it's we do a that. slow news week, so now we're reviewing the reviews. <laughs> we're reviewing the it's reviews. It's really meta. This is really meta. <laughs> this is podcast at its finest. But uh, I did want to um, explain our podcast a little bit, explain a little bit about us for anyone who's new, who's just excited about the show at, like we are and wanting to know what we're about. Um, we are a weekly podcast dedicated to talking about the TV show. But yes, in anticipation, as Clay was saying, we decided to go ahead and do an issue-by-issue breakdown to kind of um, get ourselves into the world of Watchmen to remind ourselves what was going on with the whole story and how this is going to lead into the upcoming TV show where they're building upon the mythology of that world and they're presenting something completely new with it, which is you know very exciting. And we want to um, we want to be able to give very fresh perspectives on the show. So I think our approach is going to be that we're going to watch it and we're going to pretty much sit down and just talk about the show that night when it comes out. Yeah, we'll have some structure, you know, obviously kind of go over a summary, discuss kind of maybe impressions, things we like, things we didn't like, kind of thing. You know, I think we're going to talk about that and build on that structure. But yeah, generally speaking, we're going to talk about it kind of hot off the press. Right. So, well, I wanted to introduce ourselves. My name is Grant Davis. And I come from doing a bunch of other different podcasts about television, pop culture. I do uh, stuff on beer as well. Also run this little uh, podcast studio we are currently in right now. I have done a series of other podcasts, like I was saying. I do one on Star Trek. I used to um, be the lead host on a weekly show called The TV Dudes. Let's get to it. What's the one that you? What's the one that you really had high expectations for? Just didn't pan out. Of podcast? What's your biggest failure? <laughs> um, oh man, you know what? I did, I did this geek, like a, a fake geek dating show. Oh god, kind of thing. Okay, and it didn't work out where I was pretending to be other characters. It was oh, really god. awful. In fact, I shouldn't even admit that. Yeah, I know you were just doing that alone in your closet. <laughs> I really was. Yeah, <laughs> we really don't need to see those. Yeah, I'm, so, so I'm hoping I deleted all of them. So you have experience making better podcasts than that. 
Uh, yeah. And what made you kind of interested in The Watchmen? Man, I I really enjoyed the comic. I think that the superhero genre is ripe right now for being kind of tackled and deconstructed in, in a new way with us being flooded with all the Marvel movies, the DC movies. And I think there's there's a little bit of an exhaustion point that hits and people want something fresh and new. And I think that we're definitely going to get that with this. But, you know, to make this all the sweeter, Damon Lindelof right. is my boy. Yeah, it took you long enough to say that. Man, I loved Lost. I was obsessed. Yeah. I ran ARGs with people on chat groups where we um, we tried to earn prizes in all sorts of contests like hunting Easter eggs on that show. I used to do a weekly show doing theorizing about Lost. I mean, I still remember watching the pilot episode at our at your old place in college. Yeah. Yeah. That was and that was wild. I mean, I don't think anybody had seen something like like that before that much money. You know, I think everybody was surprised that it was even greenlit. It yeah. was incredible. And we were watching it like this was before, I think, even flat screen TVs, right? I mean, we were watching this on a pretty small TV just in awe. Yeah. So it's pretty wild. Incredible. Yeah. And yeah, so uh, that that's what got me into it. I'm really excited about the upcoming show and excited to see what Lindelof brings to it, what, what uh, the cast brings to it, what Regina King as the lead brings yeah. to it. And yeah, what about you? I'm Clay LaPointe. Well, I was in the neighborhood <laughs> and you asked me to do it. Uh, no, I, I've actually, I had not read The Watchmen. I thought maybe I had. I think, you know, we know each other from undergrad. Um, obviously, we both read a ton of comics together and we've read them since then. Um, our taste in comics have changed. I think back then, you know, I was like really into, uh, what was it? Exiles. Remember that? I loved Exiles. You were definitely into Exiles. I was into it, Exiles. It was a really good comic. Yeah, Blink was cool. It was like Mimic and uh, Nocturne. Yeah, we had Morph, you know, that was cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, our taste has changed, but I remember, you know, passing comics back and forth like that. Uh, eventually, we ended up living together for a couple of years. I thought I had read this because I kind of thought that, oh, I'm sure I was introduced to this. It's part. It's in the canon. It's a big deal. It's something that everybody reads if they fancy themselves a serious comic book reader, not just somebody who reads Lindelof. I mean, The Leftovers is my favorite show. Yeah. If you don't include Frasier. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you think I'm making a joke each time I say that. It's, um, and it's Do you go back and rewatch it? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I I choose like my favorite episodes and scenes and I show them to Diana and then I'll fall asleep because I've seen it like 20 times and she stays up and watches the next morning she's like, "That was really funny." I, I'm like, "Yeah." I don't know. So anyway, I just can't. it's my favorite show outside of Frasier. Okay. And if Niles Crane, too bad he wasn't in that, you know. But, wanted uh, Niles Crane to be in uh, instead of uh, the Perfect Strangers. Yeah, exactly. Characters. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been a sweet insert. Um, so, loved that show. When I found out this was coming out with him, I was really excited. Didn't know anything about it. Started doing this with you. Was kind of into it. And then when I realized, you know, we can talk about this a little bit. But when I realized that he's not just redoing the source material, it's not an adaptation. He's p- actually picking it up. What thirty, thirty-five years later, which makes this all the sweeter because it gives Lindelof room to do his thing. So. Yeah, that's how I came to do this, and I'm excited. And now we're actually finally in it, you know, which will be cool. And, uh, you know, I'm somebody who doesn't – I don't like to watch previews when I travel abroad or within the United States. I don't even like to look at images. Like whenever I research it, I make sure not to go to Google Images or anything. Like I want to see it for the first time in person and kind of be like that. Like, you know, I'm not even on social media. But with this, I kind of thought, okay, 
I have a responsibility to be an informed fan. And so today, before this, we were getting ready for it. And we we're kind of talking about, you know, what we should talk about. And I actually did look at a few articles. And now I'm even more excited. So like for once, watching the trailer or the trailers, reading a few articles about it, it's getting me excited because it just looks so interesting and so good. Yeah. So that's what we're going to tackle here. We're going to talk about um, our pre-premiere jitters. We're, we're excited for the upcoming episode. We're going to be discussing what the reviews have been so far. They had the uh, debut at New York's uh, New York Comic Con, and then they also had their their premiere uh, in Hollywood uh, just a couple days ago. <laughs> By coastal. Christ. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be talking about some of the interviews they've given, a few little tidbits about that. Then we're going to theorize a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So, yeah. But uh, before we dive into that, I just want to let everyone know, hey, if you are listening to this, um, please go ahead and subscribe to us. You can listen to us on whatever podcasting app that you listen to, be it iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or um, Google Play. Go ahead and uh, subscribe. We'd appreciate that. You can also help us out by going and leaving a five-star review and uh, writing a little bit about what you appreciate about this this podcast, if you do. If you don't, don't say anything. Just give us the five stars. It helps us out. Yeah. And we also want to say that um, if you are wanting – if you're watching this on video right now, we are doing live streams of our episodes when we record them. And you know what? I think then um, after we do the live stream, we will have the video itself available to our patrons over on Patreon.com. So if you go there and uh, make a pledge, you can you can give us a, a five bucks a month, and in exchange you'll be able to see the, the disappearance of your mustache. The videos, yeah, the disappearance. I haven't of, seen you for a week, and my goodness, it's gone. My mustache is gone. I, I kind of miss it. I also cut my hair. And my wife said, oh, you look like a human being again. Oh, that was that was the anniversary present? It was. Okay, nice. And At least I, there was I a good it. reason. I, you know, I always grow it up for like Halloween. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm going to have, have a costume idea where I need a big mustache. Yeah. And I didn't have any ideas for this year so far. Damn. So. Okay. The closest I had was like, I kind of wanted to be Craven the Hunter. Mm-hmm. But that's such a gamble depending upon the weather. Mm-hmm. Like, am I going to be too cold? Am I going to be wearing a fur vest mm-hmm. and having this... Sexy bare chest, and it's it's too much for people, yeah. or too much for me for the. Wife. I don't think anyone now is going to subscribe to Patreon <laughs> after after this description. Did, did we just go to negative? How did yeah, that happen? Exactly. <laughs> we owe people money. Cool. So, what do you got for us? Uh, all right. Yeah. So, uh, oh, patreon.com slash who pods the watchman. That's where you can go make that pledge, and we appreciate all of the support you guys have given us thus far. All right. Let's uh, first up. I wanted to go and talk about the reviews. Yeah. Sweet. So reviews are in. The uh, show first debuted to about 2,000 people at New York Comic Con. Uh, it seemed like it got some pretty positive reception. A lot of people had to tweet vaguely, like no one wants to. I think people, I think our culture has gotten pretty good about being protective of spoilers and whatnot online. And yeah. so everyone who's tweeting is just like, oh man, it's amazing, but yeah, not really saying anything beyond that. Apparently, it's got a great ending. It's it's kind of a cliffhanger thing, and no big surprise, it's yeah. Lindelof. Yeah. But uh, they also had the uh, premiere in Hollywood, like I was mentioning before, at the ArcLight, and which I w- was just two days ago, I and believe. I, and I will say this, sorry to interrupt, but you know, if you're listening to this or watching this, obviously you probably don't care about certain things being spoiled. 
But I think you and I will probably talk liberally and freely about things that maybe we read in articles and everything like that. We have obviously no insider information, but just trying to do our due diligence here. If you want to go into this totally doe-eyed, fresh-faced, whatever, then you probably should not listen because we might talk about a little stuff that's going on. Are you going to spoil stuff? Because I, I, I've I, never done this. I intend to like when we talk about the episode next week. Uh-huh. We're talking about the episode, yeah, and there's uh, that's a spoiler zone, right? Yeah, but here. I haven't read anything about like what people saw when they watched it. Did you not read the New York Times article or the New Yorker? I glanced or, or over the, the New York Post. I glanced over certain sections. I have a I have a vague idea of what's being addressed in the episodes. Okay, and that's what I kind of wanted to talk about. But I don't know any specifics about any of the episodes. Well, I wouldn't necessarily even use the word specifics. Okay. Maybe I'll just whisper to you in your ear. <laughs> it'll get it'll get weird. We'll do some. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> do you know sign language? Okay, yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll figure it out. Uh, but yeah, I would like to say that we will try to navigate this in a way that we're not um, spoiling anything uh, big about the episode that you wouldn't know beyond the trailer. Yeah. For the most part. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Going back to the reviews, Rotten Tomatoes has this at a 91% right now, which is pretty good. Yeah. There was that uh, CGI bear movie. What was that one? Paddington? That was padding. This is like Paddington level. It's not pa- it's not Paddington 2. Paddington 2 was like 98%. Paddington 2 was like the shit. Everyone yeah. loves that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So okay. it's one not the- there. Okay. Uh I I pulled up one little quote that said, "Bold and bristling Watchmen isn't always easy viewing, but by adding new layers of cultural context and a host of complex characters, it expertly builds on its source material to create an impressive identity of its own." Hmm. That's fair. That's that's cool. They they've successfully done the update to uh, contemporary issues, and that's kind of it's kind of one of those things where you're like, ah, I wonder how this is going to play out when when we watch the movie that which we just reviewed a couple days ago, um, our last week's pod. We were watching a movie that was so slavishly faithful to the material that it's addressing still the same exact 1986 problems. But it's to an audience that's lived past it. Mm-hmm. So we're in the future looking back at this nuclear arms race anxiety that we don't fully relate to anymore, right? Yeah. And right. so there's a little bit of this distance. Whereas when that came out, when the comic book came out in 86, people were still freaking the fuck out. Yeah, well, it wasn't dated. It completely did resonate with people's anxiety about the whole thing. And... So now it seems like uh, Lindelof has decided to uh, tie this much more into um, racial tension. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know if you necessarily want to go there right now. Um, I don't know how you're structuring this, but he did say in a few different interviews I read, which um, – and I, I think really the, the articles are really good that I – if anybody wants to go to check out – the New York Times had a great one. It was called Who's Going to Watch the Watchmen or Who Will Watch the Watchmen. That's us. Yeah. Uh, the Ringer, which I love, love, love. I don't know if anybody else is into sports and kind of pop culture stuff. I mean, pretty heavy on sports and the NBA in particular. But um, The Ringer did a good job, a good article on The Watchmen. Right. Um, I think, you know, the HBO was an initial investor in The Ringer. So I don't know if they still have a deal where when there's a new – I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not ah. sure. Um, and they always say that in their, in their article, like HBO was an initial blah, blah, blah. They, they try to disclose it. He said that, you know, looking at this, what was the biggest anxiety and the tension? It was nuclear annihilation and that fear and that threat of that here – in 2019, it is race relations. And so, of course, he chooses Tulsa. And this is such a great thing. And every time I watch The Leftovers, I always think to myself, nothing was done by happenstance. 
you know, if they they if they like everything from obviously the framing and uh, the framing of it and the music and everything else, but even if they hesitate on a character for another two seconds or something, he did that for a reason to build this tension or like create this like you know. I don't know. I, I I don't know. The pacing is deliberate. Exactly. Everything's deliberate, right? Pacing. I don't know. I just love that show because every time you watch it, there's nothing wasted. And I really expect the same things when it happened here. And it was really nice to see that, okay, he didn't just choose – like sometimes I feel like people will choose a non-bicoastal city just because they want something different to stand out. Mm. Like what's the show where the guy uh, – what's the uh, the fantasy football show? The League? The League. They're in Chicago. You're like, oh, you notice that. You're like, oh, okay, you're in Chicago. Yeah. What was that movie where they uh, Jennifer Aniston pretends to be a family and they're drug smuggling? It's, the one with the RV? Yeah, exactly. What was that called? I don't even know. That, Ed Helms and her or something? Exactly. That started in Denver. Okay. I don't remember the movies, but I remember thinking when you watch them or the shows, you're like, oh, that's not New York or LA. Cool. Hmm. Right? Like I mean, Walking Dead is like all through Georgia. Yeah, Frasier. Yeah. I hate to bring it back to Frasier, but that's in Seattle. <laughs> so this, I was thinking, okay, he chose Tulsa. May, who knows why? You know, it's maybe it's just a Fargo thing. We're like, I just want to choose something that's remote. I can kind of I have freedom to do my own thing. I'm not just boxed in by like New York and Manhattan mm. or whatever. But then you realize, okay, he chose Tulsa because that was like the Black Wall Street in the early 1900s. And that's that was a place where there were kind of these townships in the United States. I don't know. Are you familiar with this? No. There were these kind of townships where black communities kind of found safe haven. And in Tulsa was actually the most famous one. And they said that that was actually one of the first and only um, self-sustainable kind of self-sustaining communities that were like black-only communities, kind of like in early Harlem when Harlem was successful. And they said that it was – you know people could actually this – is, this is a time when, when black Americans could not gain – get access to loans to build homes, to build, start businesses or anything, right? Right. So they said here that, you know, it was kind of this thing where they were sharing wealth and money would change hands 19 times before it left the community. So that means, you know, the banker's giving it to the person starting the business and then they're going to lend it out to somebody who's going to, you know, or somebody's going to buy their product. They're going to, you know, build a home, whatever. It was this great thing. So then, very like tight-knit community. Uh, absolutely. And they could actually thrive and people knew about it. People would find out about it in newspapers and they would move there. And Tulsa was this great beacon of hope and light and liberty for black people. They could walk the streets at night. They could go to the movies. They could go to dinner, go to restaurants and do these things without being accosted and and lynched actually. That was going on a ton, right? And so then 1917, 1918, 1919, that starts happening more. And then 1921, it culminated in race riots where you had armed white men that burned down the entire place. And they actually called it Black Wall Street because it was known across the United States as a place where black people could go to actually have that American dream. And then you have over a thousand white men looting it, burning it down, stealing, killing people, and they completely annihilated it. And other black communities around the United States after that in 1922, 23, tried to build it back up. But you know how it goes. It just didn't build up as strong as it was before. And so that's why Lindelof chose Tulsa. So even that, we're like, okay, that's why. And he's actually going to reference that in, in, in episode one. That's – wow. That's really powerful and – And I'm sorry for – you know, that's I probably, a story I didn't know about. I probably – or I certainly butchered it and I'm sorry. That's just kind of my Wikipediaing this week. No, but I mean that seems like such a, an important part of history that, you know, how do I not know about something like that occurring? It's awful. And I'm glad that it's being put to the forefront and – being addressed. And that is a very fascinating starting point for where this show's going to go. Yeah, totally. Man. Um, 
So knowing that, kind of he's framing it around this this idea of race and maybe what it means to be an American and and the power structure that goes with that. It's just going to be pretty fascinating. Right. So. There's uh, If we jump over to Metacritic, uh, they have it at an 81 right now. They have 15 reviews in um, IndieWire, RogerEbert.com, and Collider all gave this a 100%, just a perfect score. Then there's uh, people like um, The Oregonian and Variety that gave it a 50 which is a pretty harsh score. So I guess there is something pretty polarizing about this show upcoming, and I'm curious why. Yeah, I like, think that's people great. are having such a range of emotions on the spectrum. It it feels very much like leftovers. How that one was received, it, and that's why I love it. You know, and I think Lindelof is ready for it. At least from what I read the last few days, he said, you know, two thousand people are going to see this tonight, mm-hmm. and tomorrow one thousand will hate it. And he knows that, and he can sleep with it. You know, after Lost, he was, I think, maybe so, not scared. It definitely steeled him up for it. Yeah. For sure. And so now he's like, you know, I chose this. I chose the hard path. I'm not just doing an adaptation like Snyder or something. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to do this, and a thousand people might hate it. But you know what? Fuck it. I got money from HBO for a reason. People know I'm good, and they're going to appreciate it. At least some people will appreciate it. You know, though, it's it's funny because you look at the first season of The Leftovers, and you see that he still was holding on to a lot of that pain from the reception that the final season of Lost and the finale in particular got and like how a lot of dickheads on the internet, and there's a few of them out there, uh, just kind of uh, went after him for no reason. You know, it's, yeah. it's not your story. Yeah. There's this, the fucking entitlement of people that like, oh, it's, I've invested my time in this story and therefore I get to dictate how it ends. I mean, I've invested leaning back in my sofa like a slack-jawed, drooling idiot Right. And therefore I can criticize. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. There is I, – I get fandom and, and being so into something. But if it doesn't go your way, move on. Yeah. You don't have to continue to shit on something like the people that hated The Last Jedi. I was not the biggest fan of The Last Jedi. I can move on from that was shit. Was that the like the, la- the most recent one? Yeah, the most recent one. I mean, there's problems I had with it. I also really enjoyed a lot of it. So I don't I, know. I think I watched on a plane. I don't care. People – People are just annoying. What do you think about that other one? That Rogue one, Squadron, Rogue One? Rogue One was dope. Yeah. God, that's what I'm talking about. You know what I didn't like about that one? Mm. The CGI for how they remade the people when they have the younger Princess Leia and they have okay, the younger uh, Peter Cushing, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. They looked horrible. They were all dead-eyed and creepy. Ugh. I don't remember. Uh, they, they totally fucked that and up. Do you know why that movie was good, though? Uh, because they had... The tragic ending? They didn't shy away from it? Well, that it, – yeah, it did It did segue into the story and fit within the story super nicely. But they didn't have powers. It was real people. I loved it because mm. when you have real people, there's actual metal in it, you know? And I mean M-E-T-T-L-E. It's just interesting because, oh, you can't jump three stories away from this lightsaber. You actually have to – you actually could die. Wow, this is exciting all of a sudden. The and sticks. that's what we don't have – in a lot of the Marvel movies, as you know, sometimes I, criti- I criticize like the whole Marvel, what's it called, MCU or whatever. Oh yeah, that's we're, what we're, I have. I have us uh, addressing this. Sweet, in a bit. but yeah. that's why I'm excited. <laughs> that's why I liked the Watchmen comic book because we didn't know who had powers really, and it didn't really matter at the end. Mm. And that's why I'm also excited about the TV show because it doesn't really focus on that so much. It's fo- it focuses on these real American ideals of racial tension and things like that. So. That's kind of why I'm I'm excited about this, and who knows? I mean, if somebody does have a superpower, I guess the question for you is: Let's say 
one to two people have a superpower. Are you cool with that? And let's say seven to eight people in the show, he departs from the Watchmen comic and seven or eight people have superpowers. Is that going to seem a little, you know, carnival to you? Uh, Oh, that's interesting. I don't, I, I don't know if anyone's going to have yeah. superpowers. Other than it, other than if our, our favorite big blue cool man or Kool-Aid man comes back. Yeah, I would think yeah. if if he shows up, which, you know, they, they dangle the tease at the end of one of the episodes, whether someone's hand is painted blue and they're wearing phosphorescence or it is Dr. Manhattan. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. you know, it, it could go either way. Well, I mean, well you know, Vate, Vate's in this one, too. Right. So, I mean, you you were of the impression that he had superpowers last time, or at least you thought, is super intelligence a superpower? And I said no, because I didn't like the guy. <laughs> yeah, I do think that he's he's super smart, right? Like, I like my dog a lot, so I'll just say my dog has, a, has superpowers. Right. But, you know. Um, okay, so I wanted to read one of these old reviews from here. It says, the series scope is astonishing given its subject matter, and even more so is its relentless entertainment value. Through six episodes, Watchmen has already provided a bounty of intelligent theories to study and debate, but it's designed to be one hell of a good time as well. And that's from IndieWire, from Ben Travers. I've read IndieWire. Sweet. Um, yeah, which they got to review six episodes so far. Yeah. So that also kind of colors where this, these reviews are going. So it's not just people's reaction to the first episode. Yeah. And I'll say, too, that you know I don't know what you read, but um, I think um, – what's her name? King? Regina King? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She mentioned that the first two episodes, uh, I think Lindelof actually said he kind of wanted it to be like what he called it a Thursday crossword puzzle. I don't know if you read that. He was like, I want it to be manageable but difficult, which I think he's better at crossword puzzles than I am because by Thursday, (laughs) I'm way out of my element. Let's say Tuesday slash Wednesday, all right? Yeah. Okay. Give me a – let me just feel good on a Monday. Um, But – so he he and I think that's the same thing for me. He said he first read The Watchmen when he was thirteen, and he had no idea what to make of it until about issue six or seven. Now I read it at thirty six, and I felt the same way. I wasn't really confused about what was happening, but I kind of thought, ah, this is something I haven't seen before, and I don't really know where it's going. I don't know what I should know. I don't know what I should, you know. It's like it's like um, what's his name, Donald Rumsfeld. Like you know, there are unknown unknowns and known unknowns, etc. It's like I don't know what's going on here, and I don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And the Lindelof says the first two episodes of this are like that, and he did that on purpose. So for the first two weeks, we might think, is he not is he not able to structure this that well? Where's this going? And after that, by issue by episode three, he should tighten it up a little bit. So that's just something to think about. I think if people just watch the first episode, they might not really know where this is going. I think with the the new television landscape's always kind of evolving and changing and adapting to how they know the deliverable is going out to. The individual. And it used to be you live or die by a pilot, right? And now it seems like a lot of shows have this security blanket of knowing, hey, I've been purchased for X amount of episodes. He knows for sure. He has one season. He has nine episodes for his first season. And he gets to tell the story he wants to tell uh, with the beginning, middle, end within that nine episodes. So – he doesn't have to play it safe. He doesn't have to lay out everything, feed all the the audience with a baby spoon here. He can be incredibly playful. He can kind of throw us off balance and be really disorienting with what he wants to do in telling a story so that we are intrigued but maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Like that 
that seems like uh, an intentional choice. He's done it before with a lot of his episodes with, uh, I mean, looking at Leftovers yeah. in particular. Yeah. The last two seasons, oh, man. he got so much more experimental. He seemed to loosen up and get playful with everything and then just go, let's do something crazy. Let's do International Assassin. Let's mm-hmm. do... And it uh, worked. Let's have a lion sex cult <laughs> fuck boat party thing. Right, uh, right, right. And those are amazing episodes. They're so engrossing and they're weird as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, do that. So, are you just, are you telling me that if if society has a security blanket mm. and a place to fall safely that they can follow their dreams and we're all better we're all the better for it? Look, if, are you saying maybe we should have Medicare for all and these things we're not tied to our jobs to get health care? What? I'm just saying I hope Yang is Bernie's running partner. There we go. Yeah, no, I <laughs> – I, I get that universal basic income. I actually never thought about that fact that things used to be so pilot-driven and now, you know, it's it's purchased as a package. And that's really interesting to think I mean, it's not about. always the case. It really depends. Like networks, I th- still think, live and die by that pilot. So and, okay, and so I don't watch – I don't watch – I mean, I don't want to be like one of these millennial cable cutters or something because I think we're – too old to be millennials anyway, right? But uh, do I, do you actually have situations now where there's a pilot and then maybe they'll air two more episodes and then they just cut it? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Like oh, wow. The past few years there's been – So you'll have like shows. an ABC show that just nobody watches on a random Tuesday night for whatever reason. One of the famous ones, uh, I think like three years ago, four years ago, Paul Reiser show came okay. out. I think – I don't think it made it past the second episode. <laughs> and he's just – he's paid for – Oh, yeah. He got, he got paid. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. still embarrassing, especially when you put your name on it. <laughs> and right. It's bad. Oh, John God. Mulaney's show. Uh, I don't think it made it past the first season. Um, but I, I'd be surprised if it made it through the first season. Uh, yeah. What's the guy that kind of looks like John Mulaney that was in Grant a TV Justin. show 15 years the ago? Flash. No. Although, God, is that on? That's now on like they season totally six alike, or something right? now. No, you're right. They do. What was another show about 15, 20 years ago? This kid worked at a bowling alley. It was kind of a feel-good drama. Do you know what I'm talking about? Give me any other details about That's him working in a bowling alley? I, I watched it with my mother. That's the only other detail I can it, give you. And it was a network show? Ooh, God, with my mother, it could have been like WB or CW or whatever it was back then. Man, I'm sorry. Are you, done? Are you out of your depth? Yeah. 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 Worked at a bowling alley. Hey, if you guys know. It's not in your wheelhouse. Yeah, let us know. Uh, chime in. But, uh, oh, yeah. Well, so, anyway... My my overall point was that there are mixed reviews. Some people are a little bit um, not feeling it. There's a couple 75s instead of uh, 50s, but You know also. what would be interesting? It would be interesting to look back at like – I mean obviously this is not Game of Thrones and I think that's why that's created an expectation for HBO. And you can see them trying to push it with that uh, McAvoy show or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I mean they're trying to find their next one and usually when you do that, it's, you're not going to find it, right? Who do you think is going to watch this? Like – what percentage will like whenever we look at this in two weeks, will it be a failure if like what will make it what will make it a success or a failure? Right. I think that there is going to be it's gonna be a mixed bag of people. I think there's gonna be a bunch of lost fans and leftovers fans, just Lindelof fans that are going to jump on board this. There's going to be a bunch of Watchmen fans, but they're gonna be a mixed bag, I think. Absolutely. Like they're they're going to watch this, but I think with their hackles up, like you better deliver yeah. For me, what I uh, something that fits my expectations because I think there's a certain degree of uh, of preciousness that some people feel toward Watchmen that like 
please don't fuck this up for me. Yeah. But after we had the Zack Snyder one, if you're on board with that, you should be on board with anything. Yeah. But there's also going to be a bit of a pushback because I think there's I think there's going to be an element of this that is a bit too intellectual mm-hmm. for some, for some people, which isn't me trying to be demeaning to people because TV is different for everyone and some people want their intellectualism to live in other mediums and they don't particularly like it that way. Yeah, right? well, well said, Grant. I'm trying okay. to be diplomatic. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're on a niche podcast. I think you could say whatever you want. All right, well, well fuck the dummies. Yeah, um, exactly. But I, I do, like, you look at a show like Westworld and that came out and was trying to ride the coattails of Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones is, is a fucking heavy show. It's all about... Um, political uh, strategy going on. Like you think it's a sh- it's a fantasy show about dragons, but no. What they're spending most of their time is is with political strategy. It's real politic and these messages delivered by ravens. Yeah, yeah, and that's the bread and butter. And they they sold it with a few tricks uh, and magic here and there, but really, it's it's an intense show with a a massive ensemble cast that you have to try and pay attention to all the different plot lines. And yeah. And it was massive. It was a massive success. The thing is, isn't it? Isn't it always like that? Like you know, people would have Mad Men parties, and they would completely ignore. Or I just think generally. I mean, you know, again, I don't want to overset my bounds here. Talk out of school, but like people would forget that there were these great. There was this great tension and struggle, and like these personal and familiar relationships and racial issues. And it was really it was a, this time of profound change in America. And people just really thought, oh, we want to dress in these old like Brooks Brothers clothing and have gelatin par- like parties where we have gelatin desserts and fancy cocktails. And that's yeah, all they people, care about. People just take everything on the surface level. And, and that's and and will will the watchmen have enough of that surface level to draw in those kind of viewers? I don't think so. And, you know, honestly, <laughs> fuck them. Like, who cares? Not if they're spending the first two or this three isn't... episodes going bonkers and this weird. And this is in Tulsa. Like, no one is going to – there's not really that wow pizzazz kind of factor that Game of Thrones had with, I mean, the specter of dragons. I mean, when do they appear? Like, season three? But there's the thirst. There's the the hunger yeah. for something to take the place of Game of Thrones and something to not just be a binge model show like – like you could argue, you could argue Stranger Things is one of those great shows that like everyone can like watch and talk about. But they're talking about that that next week. Right. Yeah. They're not no talking way. about that week after week after week after week. Like, what's the next show there? Yeah. You have you have little pockets of people over here that might be talking about Scandal or or uh, that's my mother, by the way. Which talking about Scandal? I don't think Scandal's around. I think that finished. You know. Well, let me ask you this R- really quickly, just because I think you're you're so much more versed in this than me. Do you think Netflix is learning from maybe the HBO model that it still makes sense to release things on a weekly basis? I think they were actually – like Hulu does this where okay. um, Hulu will release like four episodes up front and then they'll do a weekly model. Okay. I don't know if that's necessarily paying off for them. But I do think Netflix has actually said they're going to start playing around with doing weekly releases of other shows. They already do it with some – Like Great British Baking Show, they do it, which is the Friday night classic at my house. I don't know what you do on Friday nights. Uh, not that. Not that? Oh, Jesus. Okay. Um, but they do it with like the uh, Hassan Minaj show as well. I think they'll release uh, weekly episodes. But that one's a lot more uh, like timely and topical. Yeah. So it makes sense. Okay. I love that. I love that. I mean, obviously for us, it gives us more time to talk about stuff. So it works with what we do. There's definitely something I miss about having a show that you can get little pieces of a story and sit with and, and digest and analyze. 
it cheapens a show when we binge it sometimes. And I, I feel bad that I'm like, it's eating a bucket of, of, of Godiva's like their M&M's, right? <laughs> yeah, I think we all remember back in college uh, on MLK, the McDonald's, or at least certain, some of us, you know, at the University of Texas between 2001 and 2006, they had the 50-piece bucket of nuggets on certain, they didn't always have it, but they would come out with it, come out with it on certain days. And as far as binging, we didn't have this, the streaming thing back then. And I remember a buddy of ours, a mutual friend, we had two chicken nugget buckets and we watched Sex in the City in an entire weekend. Mm-hmm. We watched the entire thing in a week, maybe a three-day weekend, which is insane. It was pretty gross. It was pretty, what, the Sex in the City or the chicken nuggets? The chicken nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those were nasty. Yeah, those were pretty gross. So anyway, I, oh yeah, you're not a McDonald's guy. Nah, man, I swore off of it. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, yeah, I, I. Sorry, long story short, I really love the serialized nature, the drip, 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 because it gives us something to talk about. And I think we might need that with The Watchmen. Well, I want to move on to talking about what we've already kind of touched on a little bit, but the idea that white supremacy and race relations are going to be at the forefront of the the themes and, and plot lines of this upcoming Watchmen show. There was a post on Instagram I I follow um, this HBO.Watchmen Instagram. That's uh, the, the person do they, that do posts Do they follow there. back? Yeah, they follow back. Nice. Uh, but they seem to be like just really on top of like every Watchmen thing. So it's, it's really good following them. And they posted this exchange that happened in the comments section of one of uh, Damon Lindelof's posts on Instagram. And someone said, can you explain why white supremacy is the plot arc of Watchmen? And he replies, to me, Watchmen is a story of... of about America, and it's about self-proclaimed heroes, quote-unquote, fighting an intangible enemy that is almost impossible to defeat. In the 80s, the enemy was the pervasive threat of nuclear Armageddon between the U.S. and Soviet Union. In 2019, that enemy is the long-overdue reckoning with our country's camouflage history of white supremacy. That said, this is not the only plot arc, because there's also alien squids. Right. And then he goes on to say... Um, Rorschach died in 1986. 33 years later, there are multiple interpretations of who he was and what he believed. President Obama was a devout fan of President Lincoln, and the Republicans called themselves the party of Lincoln. The actual Lincoln has been eclipsed by the idea of Lincoln, and whomever wants to appropriate the idea to support their ideology will do so. Anywho, maybe we should revisit all of this once you've seen the season. Just know that, A, I'm a true fan, too, of The Watchmen. B, it wouldn't be Watchmen if it wasn't dividing as hell. And C, also they're squids. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I like choice C. I, I think I love Lindelof. First off, I, I like how he, he uh, I like how he uses humor to uh, address these questions. But he, he doesn't flinch away from this. And I think this is an important conversation to have. And if you think about like... What is it that we could talk about as giving the most anxiety? I mean, right now, all people are inundated with is the politics of the planet <laughs> right. and and this fear of, of a rise of fascism, of a rise of, of um, nationalism. nationalism, but whether white nationalism or otherwise. Right. And, and then nativism, nativism and and tied inextricably to all of that is this issue of of race. It's the seedy underbelly that I think is a good call for him to want to tackle with this show. 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I'm really curious to see what, what's the um, – obviously the people who wear masks that kind of got hold of Rorschach's journal or diary. What are they called? The Seventh Cavalry? Seventh Cavalry. Okay, so you know – With a K. Yeah. I, I'm really curious to see what they believe in if they're just kind of these nativist anarchists or if they actually I, – I mean I highly doubt it. Well, actually, I don't know because Lindelof does like complex characters and complex groups. You know, there's never an easy answer with him, which is good. But Rorschach, just recently reading The Watchmen, he did have some parts that were unsavory in his diary, to say the least. I mean, that would not be acceptable back then. It's definitely not acceptable today. But there were a lot of parts of him that actually were were pretty good, you know, and I think that they're kind of admirable. Yeah, but but when you think about his diary Mm -hmm. versus – what we thought was admirable. Yeah. You know, you're Do right. you think it's what he wrote down that was admirable he probably or did not the ri- actions we saw? Yeah. He likely did not write down the awkward handshake. <laughs> <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally found love in the brotherhood of man. <laughs> Decided to be nice. Just, yeah. And I'm not calling her Silver Spectre anymore. Now I respect her as an individual. I'll call her by her Polish surname. Yeah. No. No, no, no. no. So you're, you're, you're right. So I'm sure the, the parts that we don't love are what they read. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So I guess okay. Question asked, question answered. Well, I, I, to follow this up, there was a Variety article, and I know I'm just kind of like reading a lot of these quotes, but I, I found them so fascinating. That's kind of what I just wanted to discuss. Um, in the Variety article, uh, Lindelof goes on to talk about um, the ser- uh, existential dread, and he says, "What the once again, he's kind of reiterating what he's talking about um, the contemporary analog." Uh, for the Armageddon nuclear race is the long overdue reckoning with race. The true history of the country has been camouflaged and needs to be revealed. In bringing diverse perspectives to tell a story that brings a conversation about race front and center, uh, Lindelof wanted to avoid tokenism in the writer's room. Yeah. Uh, in our writer's room, we created a whale, uh, a white male minority, he explained, adding that the four of the that four of the 12 writers were white men. Uh, I went into that writer's room saying I really need to listen. Yeah. I thought that was a that's a very smart choice and yeah. it's very Lindelof. Uh, another little behind the scenes about totally. him is when he went into doing the leftovers. He when he t- he talked about when he was doing his writers room when he was hiring people, he made everyone that came in say, "Okay, I want you to tell me uh, what you thought about Lost." Like he didn't give many many how they answer that question. Just tell me your thoughts on Lost. And if anyone was just singing the praises of it and not being critical about it, he wouldn't hire them. He didn't want anyone who could in any way be a sycophant toward him. And he's like, that's not going to be useful to me. He yeah. also has this policy that he doesn't ever want to um, hire the same person for his next project th- that he just worked with on his last one. That's why you don't see the Lost alums in Leftovers. And that's why you weren't going to see Leftovers alums in Watchmen, except that he brought Regina King as his lead. Thank from God. The third season. She's so awesome. She's awesome. It's a great call. Yeah. But but otherwise, he, he, likes, to, he likes to challenge himself and uh, – be self-critical, which yeah. I think is so important and crucial. Yeah. And, you know, but I, also challenge his own biases. And I, think, and, and I think that there's a ton to be said for that and it shows in the work. I remember reading – I think there's an – and this has been years since I've read this article or even re- or referenced it. Uh, I think it was The Atlantic and I could be wrong, but they talked about who he found in the writer's room for seasons two and three of, 
of uh, of the leftovers. And did you read anything about that? He had somebody who was like really good with popular culture, and, and that's and, and then somebody who was really good with religion, and somebody who was really good with history and things like that. And that's why you end up with this really layered, multi-textured kind of thing that happened in seasons two and three that we didn't get in one. When you said, like you said, he was so tied to that original source material. Season two and three loosened up, and thank God because I mean it's my favorite show, but I. You know, even showing it to family members and really close friends, I always kind of actually just summarize season one for them. And I'm like, you don't need to watch season one. Let's start off in Lockhart, Texas. It's yeah. You have to apologize for how fucking melancholy that first season is. And, you know, speaking of like the visual language of a show. Yeah. um, That first season is very claustrophobic. Everything is like really tight shots on everyone and everything is really darkly lit. And it feels suffocating which is is emotionally effective for the material and what he's addressing in that first season but it makes it a really heavy watch absolutely and you watch what Mimi Letter did in the second season when she uh, just like took over as like I'm I'm the straight up visionary for our our visual language of going forward for the show yeah and she's just like we're opening we're pulling back we're opening up we're bringing light in we're oh, making yeah. everything just like we're changing up the whole visual language of this and it made it intoxicating. And I think it's a great counterbalance to the heavy nature of the themes that he wanted to address in the leftovers to have it not just be a, a one, two punch. And so it's still, heavy. and it's still seasons two and three are heavy as hell. You still have one of the most beautiful, profound shots. I think I've seen in all of television ever. And that's the scene where Nora Durst, is in the hotel room after they has had the fight in Australia and the fire alarm goes off and it's raining down on her and they do the close-up shot yeah. of the water just pouring off of and her he had, eyelids. And he had just slammed the door and walked out. It was so good. He was like, just be with them. Man. Just be with them. Yeah. I Incredible. No, I mean, that was – and I'm you know that this has nothing to do with the Watchmen, but I was so glad they were in Melbourne because that was super sweet. Mm-hmm. What, an, what an awesome thing to do. Um, but no, I mean, I think that the writing here, he knows what he's doing and he's not someone, like you said, he's not somebody who's just going to sit there and kind of be a yes. He, he doesn't want yes men. He's kind of like the anti-Trump in a way. He actually wants somebody to challenge him and right. come up with a better solution. Um, Have people that push you. Yeah. So push you to be better. I think somebody, the, who's the right person to tackle difficult source material and to not adapt that, but build on that. He's probably one of the, the few that could do it. You know, I don't watch a lot of TV. I'm, you know, I think you watch way more than me, but I'm thinking I don't know other people who could do that. And so thank God he did because now actually this has a fighting chance of being a really good show that we talk about five, ten years from now. So let me ask you this. I mean, living in Texas, we interact maybe more so than other people. I mean, Austin is a, is a very liberal place, I feel like, mm. but it has maybe the odd luck of being in a over- – Relatively well, it's changing, but a relatively conservative overall kind of general place, right? The the joke was a blue dot in the sea of red, right. but now it's, it's, a, it's not necessarily the case a, anymore. Yeah. So anyway, and you know, there's going to be certain people probably not watching the show who will just say, "Oh God, they got to talk about race, these limousine liberals." And you know what? Fuck them. I mean, I'm tired of wasting time thinking about them. But yeah, do we don't th- need to cater to them. Anymore. But do you think certain people might think? Oh God! They're just beating this race issue and you know beating it to death. Yeah. Why do we have to talk about this again? Is this really what we're doing? Why are we doing this with the Watchmen? 
People are whiny, entitled bitches. Yeah. <laughs> like always about like every property. Too many people go into uh, a story wanting the story that's in their mind already to, yeah. to play out. Yeah. You wa- and that's the other problem of like watching trailers. You watch trailers and you start stitching together the story that you anticipate is going to be told. And if that doesn't come out. Exactly. That's not a fair criticism of the of what you get. You can criticize the actual material you get, but don't criticize what you thought should have happened. Well, it's this idea of control. I mean, these days we can control the weather or at least the temperature on our own home. We right. can control when we buy a book. It's going to be delivered in one to two days with Amazon Prime. We control – oh, we want to have – I mean, it's not authentic, but we want to have Chinese or Thai or Indian or whatever. We can do – we can, can make this – we make – decisions that control our lives in ways we never could before. And so it lends itself to everything else and it kind of bleeds over. And so you're completely right that people sometimes don't just go into something thinking, eh, I'm okay being surprised. And even like the like that's why I don't love the MCU is because if I don't think a character could actually die or there's real stakes, right? then I just have no interest. And I think this is really interesting because you know what? I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that it's going to tackle some interesting things and there's going to be great dialogue, great camera work, and there's going to be some great cinematography. And so it's going to be cool. Let me ask you this. Okay. What's up with the – because I mean in, in the New York Post, in the New, in the New York Times, and The Ringer, they all mention the squids falling from the sky. So do we have a situation where Vate still has these animatronic squids falling? Are people hallucinating? What's going on? Will we see a squid in in episode one? I think so. Okay, and tell me how and why. I well, I mean, as far as I know, and as far as we've, as we've seen from the trailer, we see raining squid. It feels like some magnolia moment with like the raining frog. Okay, so I don't actually remember, like I don't remember that from the trailer. I guess I wasn't paying attention. There's just one brief shot, and okay. you have okay. to be one of those obsessed people who freeze frame every single frame. Go, what's going on? Okay, there? I didn't see but, it, but. There's raining squid like hitting the windshield of cars, and, and they're baby. Sh- it's a baby ho- it's a hockey game. Yeah, no, they're they're like three inches big squid, that kind of thing. What is it? I don't know because the weirdest thing is the alien that was constructed was a one-off bullshit like island of uh, Doctor Moreau manifestation. There aren't actual squid aliens, and that shouldn't also in any way link to. A raining of squids, but it was psychic. Psychic powers exist yeah, yeah. in the world of Watchmen, as a, or at least they existed. A, a tangible and and powerful element that can be exploited to some degree. This brain of this squid. So, for anyone who uh, only read, only watched the movie and didn't read the comic, yeah, yeah, I guess yeah, yeah. maybe we should take a step back yeah. and say, "Hey, the, the comic ends very differently with Osmandius not launching a bunch of nukes, but instead uh, manufacturing a squid, a tentacle monster alien being that had psychic powers. He transported it into the middle of New York and then basically exploded it to death, causing a psychic blast to." resonate across the entire planet and give a bunch of people like PTSD kind of weird shit going on. Um, a bunch of like trauma that doing caused this, people co- to commit suicide and all sorts of crazy stuff. Doing this in the hopes that humanity would band together against a threat that they assume is extraterrestrial. Right. It's the the whole um, outer limits kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Storyline. I don't know if that means that the psychic blast has somehow affected a hallucination in people that they're seeing squids rain or like as like a post-trauma 
And so maybe what we're seeing is other people's hallucinations mm. or if there are actually squid that are raining because maybe there's um, psychic people with unchecked powers that are like involuntarily channeling their trauma into squid physically raining for other people. I don't know. I'm really, really intrigued by what this world's going to be. Do you think Those some – are just two I, uh, options I I wonder if there's some – I mean I'm sorry to say it. I wonder if there's some libertarianism bullshit – where the Seventh Cavalry, yeah, sorry to alienate more fans if they don't know where I already stand, but I wonder if there's some like libertarian question everything bullshit where the Seventh Cavalry uh, is questioning whether that was the real deal, whether the New York incident with the mechanical squid alien monster that destroyed New York is real. So they're skeptics and so what they're manufacturing sort of fake displays. You know to who? fuck with other people? Oh, I, I have no idea. I just wonder. I guess when I look at the Seventh Cavalry, I'm like, okay, what are they about? How did they start? How did they come about? And is it just nativism, or is there something else at play? Is there a conspiracy? And I'll say that, you know, Lindelof said in an article or two that this is going to kind of mirror structurally the Watchmen. Mm. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. He said, episode one, it will end. It will start with a murder. In episode nine, we will find out who the murderer is. It's Just, the killing? Are we watching the killing? Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we have this really small kind of Fargo thing with a murder. But in this, in you know, larger than that is this specter of aliens that could be possibly attacking in squid alien things that are falling from the sky in Tulsa. So the whole thing is just really weird. And I don't know how he's going to do it all in like an hour episode nine times over. Yeah, I don't know. You know, and I know he's not afraid to leave things un, unsolved. Uh, I guess because you know he tried to do that and lost. It didn't happen. But and he so, said very specifically he's not going to. It, right, exactly. So we might not know. But at the same time, I think that he does a good job of tying stuff together. He's also said this before, though, folks. He right. he said, "Oh, I'm going to answer everything," and then some people felt he didn't answer everything. Right, they're wrong. He right. answered everything. It's you fine. think he answered everything? I think well, he, I don't care. I, I don't think remember. He answered enough sufficiently, and then wrote a hate letter to his lost haters uh, with the theme song of the leftovers of "Just Let the Mystery Be." <laughs> God, hey, that is a song and a half. Man, it's great. Jesus Christo, I love that song. So, what else you got? Uh, so he also. Do you know much about the Scorsese news? Okay, all I know is, and from this is from looking at Reddit when I'm going to the bathroom. Sorry, he sorry to tell you that. Scorsese. I know that Scorsese said something like that the MCU is good, kind of popcorn material or something like that, right? It's not real art. He said it's not real cinema. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen the movie Silence in the last few years, <laughs> Silence is awesome. I mean, it's one of my top five movies of all time. And Spider Man Two, as much as I liked it, is not that. So I don't even know that he's wrong. But go ahead. Well, yeah, it was just that I, I thought there was something a little bit interesting. The article that I was referencing earlier, um, the Variety article, where Lindelof gives an interview, they also sort of asked him a little bit about the Scorsese kerfluffle where he's like, oh, Marvel movies? That's not real cinema. Yeah. And he, he replied, uh, there's a space in Marvel movies that they are beginning to explore and they are beginning to be provocative and interesting, Lindelof told Variety. Um 
And he says, how, how, how? Logan or Black Panther are very close, in my opinion, to cinema. And to put all Marvel movies in the same box doesn't seem fair. He went on to suggest that Scorsese's opinion might be ill-informed. I'm just curious how many Marvel movies he's actually seen. I don't view it as a put-down. I think there are there's space for popular entertainment and indie fare and cinema. Lindelof joked about his own personal taste, saying... You're talking to a guy who eats at Sizzler. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, and that's and that's like for me, Thomas Pynchon is one of my favorite writers. Mason mm. Dixon is uh, like a top three novel for me, and that is postmodernism. I mean, you will have Pynchon, and you know, half the words on the page you need to get a uh, a dictionary for. You know, it's so difficult to read, but at the same time, he will talk about really filthy and lowbrow stuff, and he'll reference comic books all the time. So it's this mix. I mean, postmodernism literature. I know postmodern art. Like painting and cinema and everything is different, but as far as postmodern literature, um, that's really just a blending of the highbrow and lowbrow art. And so I think Lindelof does a great job. He's kind of like, ah, eh, I'm outside of that conversation. I'm just kind of doing my own thing and I'm mixing what I like. And people can kind of take it how they want, but you know, I'm greenlit for this and I'm doing it. He had it kind of both ways in his statement there because he yeah. was like, I get what he's saying. It's it's popcorn fair, but at the same time, I mean, you know. Maybe you should see the movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so that's just because he just doesn't – He's hedging his bets with he's, both He's hedging audiences. his bets, but he also knows that what he does is blended, and that's really good. And that's when I think we look at when The Leftovers worked was seasons two and three, and that's when they really blended this stuff. I think there's just something a bit disingenuous with all the, the huffing and puffing from fandom about what Scorsese said because – Oh, did people actually get mad? I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, people got mad at Scorsese oh, putting down the Marvel three. movies, and I'm just like – He's saying it's not high art, it's not cinema. I think it's it's fine to say such a thing because, you know what, we're all snobs about something. There is something that all of us can be hoity-toity about, and whether it's we need, it, we yeah, need I was, to I was drink say, our, our particular fancy beer and we just can't drink lowbrow macro beers. Is that what, you, is that what you're highbrow about? Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely a snob about beer nowadays. Yeah. I, I can't drink Miller, but do you remember on one that? of our mutual buddies? He's going to law school in Portland uh-huh. and he gets, it was like, it wasn't a fat tire, but it was something like, oh, it was Deschutes. I think it was Deschutes. Mm-hmm. And so he opens up a Deschutes and somebody says, oh, that's good for a macro beer. <laughs> that it. was like his first party in law school. He's like, oh, <laughs> these people in Portland are great. <laughs> yeah, okay, so you you are a beer dude, but that's because you're knowledgeable about it. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, th- that's just the, the thing. Like, yeah. Everyone who gets thing. up in arms about, like, these these details and labels about stuff like that, we're, we're all snobs about something. And I think Scorsese, of all people, has every right to be a snob and be a little bit up with his nose about... Yeah, what would you expect him to cinema. say? What would you expect him to say? It's insane. This is this is ridiculous. Yeah, you just want him to be Joe Regular, who who loves a fucking beat him up action movie with explosions and shit. Eh. I bet he does like Die Hard. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Answers. Yes. Whoa. Is it, is it cinema? No. Yes. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. <laughs> it is the best. What about okay, Die Hard one or Speed? Uh, Die, it, Die Hard one, not dude. best movie, but rewatchable. Rewatchability. Die Hard, easy. Oh God, no. Over dude. Speed. Speed's one of the most rewatchable movies. Speed has about like fifty minutes of nothing before it gets good. Pop quiz. Like how long until he gets on that bus? It's That's a long time. Pop quiz, man. Elevator scene. It was awesome. Okay, so and at least we have John McClane like itching his toes on the carpet. And give me that over. 
Keep going. The, the story about the watch and shit. I don't care. Keep going. What else? All we right. Got? All right. New York Times had uh, that interview that you were referencing, and I pulled one little element out of there that I thought was interesting because it, it's talking about um, how Watchmen echoes some of America's societal ills and things like Joker, the movie that just came out, have been condemned recently for doing so irresponsibly, according to its critics. Does that concern you regarding how people will receive your show? Which I thought was an interesting... <laughs> I don't know if you're, you're itching your head just because you're annoyed by the question. Um, but I thought it was an interesting thing for him to be able to address. What, what, are, you, what are you itching your head about? The stifling and silencing of art with the whole Joker thing is absurd. I haven't seen the film but at the point where we're not allowed to address no and one, explore, no one's seen certain, the film, and that's what, and they're still bitching about exactly. It. <laughs> when we're at the point where we cannot explore or address things or enjoy things in a responsible way, we get to the point of having to take our shoes off for every fucking flight, and that's all I mean to say. Wow, man, that's a little bit of libertarian thing I'm kind of through. <laughs> I'm scaring myself after after what is it Wednesday? It's been a, it's been a long work week here. Uh, yeah, no. Jerry Johnson. Yes. Jesus Christ. Go ahead. Uh, so Lindelof says, um, "Are we trying to be topical just for the sake of being topical? No, but we did want to tap into what is happening around us and tell a story that was reflective of the times we're in. That's what the original Watchmen did, and that's what we wanted to do. At the same time, it's a TV show and it's a parable." So you will see people in clan robes, which is a real thing, and then squids fall from the sky, which is not. We know we're playing with fire, and we know that the audience is increasingly having a difficult time telling fact from fiction when fact feels so absurd and fiction feels so real. I also think that there's a clickbaity culture thing right now uh, that is saying Joker is a dangerous movie before anyone's actually seen it just because it feels dangerous. So if the filmmakers of Joker come out and say, we have no idea we were making a dangerous movie. We're incredulous about it. How could that be? We know that we're making something that's potentially dangerous and upsetting, and we know that we appropriated a beloved graphic novel, and we know that white, white supremacists appropriating the mask of someone who was construed as a hero in the graphic novel is not going to be loved by everyone. But we still feel like it's interesting. The show in and of itself is a Rorschach test. Everyone's going to see something a bit different based on who they are and what their relationship with Watchmen is. And man, is that a fucking great statement about it being the show itself being a Rorschach test for everyone who you're going to get out of it, what you put into it and what you're projecting onto it. It's a great statement he shouldn't have to make because people these days are idiots, but that's just the world in which we live. But, but yeah, great answer. I wish he didn't have to make it, but whatever. I wanted to follow up on that because you're right. There is this certain deification, this pedestal that they uh, that a lot of Watchmen fans put Rorschach on that is kind of inappropriate. Yeah. Um, the, if you read what this guy is saying, he's 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 a bit fascist. <laughs> he's um, He's very inappropriate. He's he's a fucked up misogynist. He's a dickhead all around. I mean, and he's he's just a, a criminal thug. I mean, he's he's self righteous, but he's fucking bonkers crazy. And that doesn't make everything that he does right. He treats his friends like shit. He treats everyone yeah. like shit. He's not a role model that people put him on a pedestal as being. I mean, at minimum, like I think Kipling talks about, government at its very basic form is a monopolization of violence. 
we've traded in everything to decide, hey, if somebody hurts you, you can't hurt them back unless it's self-defense, right? You have to let the government and your elected representatives do with them what they think is right. And hopefully we vote for that and have a say in it. But government is a monopolization of violence. So that's why Daredevil is so interesting. He's an attorney who then goes and operates outside the law because he thinks he needs to. Just like Rorschach, you know, Rorschach does the same thing, but way less restrained than obviously Daredevil. Although I don't know. I mean, lately Daredevil has been with the hand. Who knows? <laughs> but just that alone, when you're thinking – this guy goes out and beats the shit out of people at night and breaks into people's homes and ha- lives by his own rules. It's like we're in a society here. Before I was in law school, I was working in a coffee shop. I'm working there. There's a line out the door, okay? Mm-hmm. Sorry for this tangent, but there's a line out the door. There's 20, 30, 40 people in line. That was like a real Trump thing where it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Right, Talking right. to the guy with the $10,000 suit. <laughs> Joe Bluth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there's like 50, 60, 70, 80 people in line. There's this woman. She gets dropped off in this limousine, dripping in diamonds. She's like 75, 80 years old, fur coat. Wa- this is Austin, Texas in a fur coat, okay? Mm-hmm. Walks to the front of the line and says, I need my coffee, and slams her hand down on the counter. And somebody 20 people back is like, lady, we're living in a democracy here. She's a Rorschach creating her own rules. So that alone is like – that's not a heroic thing. We should all live inside the society and decide on the rules together. So that'll – yeah. So and that's obviously what these militia, the 7th Cavalry are doing. And I think it is weird that like that's what people get from Watchmen. I've been kind of reading this the last week and I don't get it. Is it just that absence makes the, the heart grow fonder or like – you know what I mean? The years of time kind of fate soften those rough edges right. because he's not a likable character. We should if – if we're looking at anybody, we should be looking at uh, – what's his name? Dan. The owl. Yeah. He's getting spooned at the end. He's a nice dude. You know he's probably going to go and he has a, like a nice 401k and he invests in the S&P 500. That, he's a vanguard guy. That's what we want. We don't <laughs> want Rorschach who gets blown up because he's so crazy. I agree. 100%. Sorry. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to our last little bit of this show, which is our theories and projections. Predictions, rather. Um, so let's go ahead and start with... What do you think? We already kind of addressed like what we thought the reception will be, who the audience will be. Do you do you think that overall audiences will like this? Do you think it'll it'll get rave reviews? Do you like? I know there's the critics. Yeah, that's what we're getting right now. That was the Metacritic stuff, but it seemed like a lot of the Twitter reaction was really positive. I think general audiences are a lot more forgiving than critics. Yeah, I think here we need to look at also general audiences in the HBO universe. Right, Because this hasn't gone mainstream to the point where if you don't have HBO Go or whatever, that you go to somebody's house to have like a Game of Thrones party. So we're already restricting that sample size down to a to the to HBO, which I, I don't know their subscriber size, but it's, it can't be Netflix, can it? I mean, it's got to be smaller than that. Or or is HBO? I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. Right. But I, I, I think it's going to be decent. Generally, HBO is known for like smarter shows, mm. more discerning viewers, right? So for that... For that, I don't even know if people will watch it. I have no idea. I mean, if you're watching Sunday Night Football or you're watching this, most TV shows in America will have Sunday Night Football on or Shark Tank or whatever the fuck else is on network TV. I have no idea. I wonder if this is just going to be another one of those shows that really needs the word of mouth, the buzz yeah. to like build other people up. I and, think so. And that's what we're doing here, folks. Word of mouth. The Lord's work. Yeah, I don't know. I, I Look, I think that the reception will be generally positive for people who watch it. But I don't know how many people are going to watch it. Do you have a theory 
about what you think is going to happen throughout the show? I don't Any know. Any theories that you want to posit now? Any, like, rough predictions or whatever? Again, I'm curious to see how we have – we know we have a murder, which is a very individual thing. And I'm curious to see how that murder works out or works together with this idea of race supremacy, you know, white supremacy – and then also this weird thing we have from the fact that, yeah, 35 years ago, this giant tentacled monster destroyed half of New York. How are all of those things going to work together? So I, ha- I have no expectations, but I'm just kind of curious to see where it goes. What about you? I don't necessarily – like the more we've discussed this, I wrote down some like silly like rough prediction thing. But I don't feel like it's really applicable now that we've had this kind of discussion. What I do feel like is that we're going to see – an element of we're we're gonna see the ghosts of our original six Watchmen mm-hmm. alive and well within this show. I mean, we've already seen evidence that we're going to see um, Adrian Vate, Ozymandias's character in the show. That's, Sally, that's Jeremy Irons going to be playing him. We're gonna yeah, we're gonna see Laurie Jupiter. Or, yeah, uh, we're gonna see um, uh, Gene Smart playing her. As uh, under the pseudonym Lori Blake, which I think in turn means we have uh, the comedian living on in the name of Lori. And I'm wondering if we might see a little bit of his cynical view of the world bleeding into her as well if she's now adopted his last name as her new um, her new pseudonym. And why is she in Tulsa? She's an FBI agent. Why in Tulsa? She's probably investigating – yeah, Some I know. Shit that went so down. interesting. Okay. If if Ozzy Oz- mm-hmm. and he's the one who gets killed, mm-hmm. let's say, mm-hmm. then well, do you know something? Do you know something sense? I don't? Do you know something I don't? I, don't. I okay, honestly okay, don't. Okay, okay. I know that there's a scene of him riding his on his horse away yeah. from something, or there's like a pirate fly, which makes me think maybe he's under threat of something. Like I could see him being the murder mystery that you mentioned, right? Um, but. Then we we also have uh, the other characters. We have an we have Night Owl ship in the show. Archie. We have Archie flying around. Does that mean that Don Johnson is Night Owl? Is there another character that's floating around that's Night Owl? Did Night Owl die but left his stuff to to Lori and she's now taking this? I don't know how this is going to play out. Doctor Manhattan. But Doctor Manhattan is also an element, and it does seem like we saw a little little glimpses of a religious faction that has built up a cult around him. Yeah. So it's not just that Rorschach has his his people that are are worshiping him. It seems like like each of these characters still has their place within this current universe and their ghost is going to in, like if they're dead, their ghost is going to still imbue the story with their essence in mm-hmm. some in some manner and and uh, we certainly know Rorschach's has because he started right. an entire cult. Right. Yeah. And I think Dr. Manhattan as well. We saw what looked like the Washington Monument has been converted into a a beacon, like a, a symbol of, of for him, maybe. And we also see these little uh, portal portals that seem to be like communication devices to like send out a message to him. Yeah. Like that's basically like this prayer device. That he's the new god and you can pray to him by sending out a message to him and hopefully he'll hear it and maybe one day he'll come back and respond. And that is like a a waiting for the return of your god. Ooh, a little sting message in a bottle. Right. Damn, that's a good song. So 
it, yeah, it seems like these people, these gods are still alive, and I think all of them are still going to have their weight on on the world of this modern day Watchmen. And that's what's going to be so interesting. I think that's kind of what I touched on. How does he do that in forty five or fifty five minutes? It's insane. And if he can juggle that, it's going to be really impressive because this isn't like this is a bit. This is a bigger story. Even though you can say, wow, the leftovers is crazy because 2% of the world died. But right. in a way, this is a bigger story because he's dealing with this bigger mythology. I know Leftovers was a book, but this is way bigger. And so to see him balance this, but we know he can do this because he was balancing a shit ton of stuff with Lost. And he was still yeah. and he was still able to have these beautiful emotive moments, which I think are the reason we still watch TV. You know, we're not watching we're not listening to somebody defend their dissertation or thesis or something. We watch TV because we like these emotional moments and we know he can do it like better than anybody. So it's gonna be cool seeing him able to expand on this and show this universe, but at the same time hone in when he needs to or wants to and show these really beautiful moments between one or two characters. So really excited. I have two other very important questions for you. The first one being what musical choices do you expect? Because you know he's drawing from the, the the musical choices in the Watchmen comic, which Zack Snyder also pulled from, but now he's doing a contemporary update on that. Do you think that we're going to have like really good soundtrack going on here? I would love it if he just kind of departs a little bit and does something kind of like Friday Night Lights-ish. You know, you, I mean, you want some uh, explosions in the sky, but I, I just mean something like that. I mean, Tulsa, at least I've never been. Have you been? Have you spent much time in Oklahoma? No, I, I don't know if I've ever even driven through Oklahoma. Yeah, I've driven through, but that's about it. But, you know, I would really love this kind of expansive, not necessarily trippy kind of stuff, but that would be kind of fun. But who, know, who knows what he can get away with? You're right. I, look, I really hope we don't hear. I really hope we don't hear. Well, maybe a little Jimi Hendrix, you know, Watchtower would be cool. But I hope we don't hear too much of that because then it's going to seem like it's too much like a Snyder thing. Right. So I don't know. All right. Last question. Probably my most important question. Sugar cubes? Will we see the sugar cubes? God damn. I've been waiting for you to ask. <laughs> I don't – I think so. Like the idea is it's like if I noticed them, maybe he did too. Senpai noticed you by noticing the sugar cubes. Yeah, if yeah, I noticed you looking at him, looking at me. So are we boyfriend and girlfriend? <laughs> That's how it works, I think. Yeah, check yes or no. Uh, then we'll do the mash thing. Where are we going to live? Yeah, no, I don't know. I would love that. And let, let me ask you this. Okay. I asked you, I think, last week or the week before, how many people you thought were going to die in the first few episodes. Oh, yeah, we had And it. I think you said 120, I said 220. Right. Because I thought maybe the cult, like one of the cult houses would get blown up or something. How are we going to keep track? Yeah, probably drink one of these disgusting Belgian. This is the sweetest, most disgusting. Is it gross? Yeah, I'm like, a, I can't even do it anymore. It's disgusting. I, I got those as a gift from my brother-in-law. And that's like, I don't know. I don't Kid, think I want to. I don't want to see what. Could your sister divorce him? <laughs> yeah, this is awful. You're out of the family. This is divorce worthy. This is a uh, god. Anyway, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't think North Texas knows how to do a good. I want to cover it up. I don't know if they're going to get mad. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, we know that there's going to be one murder at least. Mm-hmm. So, but knowing, huh? Knowing Lindelof and knowing Vate, if it is Vate, it could have been a suicide. Which in that case, is it murder? Or could it be a fake out? Yeah. Like exactly. fake your own death. Most famous fake death in fiction. Mm, Mr. Body and Clue. Okay. Oh, spoiler. I'm sorry if anyone's not seen that because 
fuck. I just yeah, ruined you just that ruined shit. generations of children. That are, uh, yeah. Was it Huck? Was it was it Sawyer or Huck Finn who who pretended to kill themselves? Um, that was Huck Finn. No, yeah. wait. I, don't, I think it was Sawyer, man. I, yeah, I think you're right. It was Sawyer because Huck Finn's whole thing was that he was just um, he was just like Podunk, not kill himself, like, but yeah, yeah he yeah. just like ran away from home and he hopped on the uh, raft. Yeah, with Jim. Yeah, but did he pretend? To, but did he pretend to die in the raft, like overturning? Anyway, that's mine, but I don't know who it was. <laughs> So we'll see. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> yeah, really. Before I ask a question, I should think about. It. No, uh, is that it? Is that it for tonight? Can you cut That's me off? It. I've done too much. I think we're done, uh, folks. We want to just go ahead and say thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, if you guys want to help us out, please go ahead and subscribe. Give us that five star rating and review, and you can always help us out monetarily by going to patreon.com slash. Who pods the Watchmen? Clay, is there anything else? I'm going to let you go ahead and close this out while I go over there and uh, mess with the controls. Unfortunately, I have nothing else to say. Say it into uh, say it into camera one right there. Unfortunately, I have nothing else to say, but we do look forward to hearing from you or talking with you. I guess in about uh, I guess about a week. So, with that, good night. Three days. Oh, shoot, three days. Well, yeah. <laughs>